Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Jansen, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jake Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast and I'm more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete. Today, we we're going to go over some EEGs of an ADHD adolescent as well as someone with a concussion TBI. You may want to subscribe to our YouTube channel for this one to get the visuals. And we're open to feedback because we're trying to do audible and visual at the same time. But before we get to that, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporter, Ars Cozo. It's the only 100% natural supplement on the market that provides balanced nutrition combining pro, pre, and postbiotics and an enzyme which has been proven to improve gut health. Just ask Dr. Laura. Her gut is so improved. She's in Hawaii somewhere. She's having a great time. We, 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 we love gut health, don't we, Dr. Skip? You know it, Pete. Got to get that microbiome in order, a.k.a. second brain, maybe first brain, according to some people. Hey, guys, check this out. They gave us a coupon code, NeuroNoodle10. What's the 10 for? 10% off. Just click on the link in the podcast notes. So, Skip. Those Patreon people get a lot of good coverage, don't they? They sure do. They sure do. If I was trying to get my name out there. Boy, it's a a low price for a lot of coverage. You know, if I was in Korea and I had a dry cap, this would be (laughs) a great way to get started. So, uh, Jay, I'm going to get going. What do you think? I think we should welcome people to the Neuro Needle Neuro Noodle Network podcast. So no, no, no. I've got to, I got to, I got to finish my morning coffee so I can speak. You know, today is a loose day. We are going to just do EEG and discussion, and we don't have a guest, so they'll have to put up with with me, uh, uh, an old one eyed uh, senior here. So we're we're going to look at. ADD, and we're also going to look at traumatic brain injury. And those are the two kinds of cases we'll look at today. To start with, not all ADD is the same. We're going to look at an EEG on an eight-year-old who has one specific kind of presentation. But there's lots of ways you can be and still have ADD. Uh, There are about a third of the ADD population have undiagnosed discharges in their EEG. And they would respond really well uh, to an empirical trial and an anticonvulsant. But uh, unless you look at their EEG, you don't see it because it's not causing seizures. We actually have a study that showed 85% of the clients that have unexpected epileptiform discharges, but no history of seizure. 85% of them improve clinically with the use of an anticonvulsant. So evidence-based medicine, individualized medicine, personalized medicine, if you see somebody that's got an epileptiform discharge in their EEG, you should consider an anticonvulsant. The problem is in psychiatry, and in general practice, there is no standard of practice that asks you to look at the EEG of an ADD kid. Uh, It should be added because we can differentiate those that need that kind of an intervention from those that need a stimulant. And which kind of stimulant? Methylphenidate, which is Ritalin or Concerta, um, is great if you have frontocentral theta which reflects a dopamine deficit in the striatum deep in the basal forebrain. And if you've got that deficit, methylphenidate is a dopamine reuptake inhibitor, and it basically stops the, essentially like a leak. There's a dopamine transport genetics, DAT genetics, that actually has an enzyme that strips away the dopamine. So you, you stop that process using the methylphenidate and you normalize the EEG. It's, it's, it's a one-to-one exact match for that pattern. Um, but a lot of people give Vyvanse or Adderall, an amphetamine, and that doesn't work with the dopamine up front. It works with norepinephrine. It speeds up your background alpha. So if you have slow alpha, the amphetamines will work fine. 
But if you don't look at the EEG, you don't know whether you've got frontal theta or slowed alpha. And there's a small subset that have beta spindles frontally. And for those kids, uh, they need a channel blocker, like in Tunivir 10X, which is guanfacine generically. And that reduces the beta spindling frontally. So, you know, it, it, it really does help to look at the EEG. My grandmother told me, don't dive into that water unless you know what's under the surface. Well, maybe it goes along with this too. If you're diving into treating an ADD kid and you don't look before you leap, you may end up stepping on something, giving a stimulant to somebody that's got an epileptiform discharge and perhaps creating their first breakthrough seizure event. So, it's, you know, look before you leap is what I would suggest. I think my grandma was right. And anytime you can quote your grandmother, you should, you know, this is the EEG. And uh, um, we're going from the front of the head to the back of the head. And th this is in an average weighted reference, which is a local, uh, it's a Laplacian technique with a local surround of electrodes. And if you look at the EEG, the darker lines are one second apart. So you can actually count waves from this line to the next line over one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, just about hits nine. So this eight-year-old's EEG is almost nine hertz. Now, in one second over here, it might be nine plus. And the Fourier analysis, which is the spectral analysis that we're going to do, uh, is going to end up giving us the average of what frequencies are stacked up at what, you know, at, uh, at what height, on a kind of like a histogram. Going through the EEG, this is basically already cleaned up of eye movement, and it's got underlines in blue of sections of it that aren't clean enough for us to want to analyze it. There are little sharp pops, uh, little muscle bursts, movement that has slow content in it, uh, pieces of the EEG that aren't of the quality that we want to use. The stuff that's not underlined is about as good as it gets for this kid. And this is basically the thing we're going to analyze. Now, we counted the alpha in the back of the head approximately 9 hertz. When we go up front, we can see there's a slower wave here. And one, two, three, four, five, almost hits number six. That theta, four to eight sometimes four to seven, depending upon the person's definition. Different schools have different band ranges that they define things by, but that's essentially frontocentral theta. And the frontocentral theta in this case uh, would suggest that this is a good candidate uh, for the, uh, the use of methylphenidate. And again, you can see the slower content up front. You can see the alpha at the back of the head. So, the, the EEG, you, and you can see a muscle uh, burst here. Um, it's, he's not doing cartwheels, but he's gritting his teeth. Um, his neck is tense. This is the back of the neck. This is the jaw. This is the forehead. So he's got muscle tension, you know, and an eight-year-old. Try and get an eight-year-old to sit still for a 10-minute recording sometime. So, the, you know, it's, it's difficult, but we do have techniques to remove the artifact so we can process the better portions of the EEG. Uh, the, the EEG that's uh, cleaned up, basically, can be processed through a spectrum analyzer. I'm going to run this full EEG uh, through a four-second long epoch, which will give us quarter hertz resolution. This is basically the power spectra that we see. And I'm going to colorize this like an old Turner classic here with the traditional band range definitions and color. So what we have here is the, the power, how, how many microvolts squared we have. And it goes from like zero up to uh, probably like seven or eight up at the top of the scale, it's an adjustable scale. And you can see that uh, the alpha at the back of the head, we counted some near nine, 
Uh, this peak is 977, and I can map that. And there's some that's a little bit slower, and this is at 8.3. But the, the alpha is generally in the alpha band, and it has some content uh, going up into the uh, 11 and 12 hertz range. And at eight years old, you're not up to normal full speed yet. You're still maturing. This is about normal for somebody of this age. And it's relatively normal to be larger on the right than the left, because your left hemisphere is, in fact, more in activated because of language. Uh, so we keep the left hemisphere running a little bit more than the right hemisphere in general. So this is not a surprise. Um, and when we look up front, we can see the red, which is in the theta band, and we can map that. And we can see the theta band is up front. Now, the same frequency in the back of the head uh, ends up being lambda, which is a visual processing rhythm. Uh, this is the alpha, the faster alpha, and the slower alpha, again, more on the right than the left. But the presence of the theta at the frontal central midline suggests that this client would respond well to methylphenidate. And um, uh, that, that ends up being uh, a perfectly good match uh, for, for this underlying case. As we turn up the sensitivity, some people look at the theta to beta ratio. The beta is in green. And you can see the theta is a lot bigger than the beta. Now, normally it's calculated eyes open. This is an eyes closed section, uh, but I can demonstrate the ratio. Uh, you simply click on the ratio here and you have to select what you're going to have the ratio. Theta divided by beta one. We wanna turn the, and they, they only really calculated at CZ and the CZ theta beta ratio uh, is, you can see the purple. That's uh, on the right-hand side of the screen. You've got the 1,500%, uh, which is a 15 to one ratio. You know, in the original study by uh, Monastra, Linden and Lubar in 1999, at seven years old, a year younger than this, a ratio of five to one, was three standard deviations outside normal. And this kit is a 15 to one ratio. Gee, I think that's a little higher than it should be. And again, the, when you see the theta so high and beta virtually non-existent, uh, the methylphenidate would, would reduce the, the theta and would increase the beta and uh, enhance the frontal lobes, attentional regulation. You know, uh, ADD is called an attention deficit disorder, but they're really, they don't have a deficit of attention. It, that's a really kind of a misnomer. Uh, they have a deficit of attentional regulation. It's an executive control of attention problem that they have. They're probably paying attention to more than you and I might. Things that would distract us are things that catch their attention. And, you know, we've learned to filter out distractions so we can focus. And for them, they're catching every little thing. Uh, there are some that say that that's the, the, the brain and mind of a hunter-gatherer who has to be uh, able to pick up little things. All the things that distract us are meaningful signals to a hunter-gatherer, uh, as opposed to an agrarian. Uh, who, where you, you need to focus and do the same thing again and again. But nevertheless, the, however, the theory ends up getting them uh, to where they are. Um, this frontocentral uh, theta-beta ratio being high and the theta peak being high, basically no beta peak. The alpha is in a normal frequency range. This kid could stand to have methylphenidate, Ritalin. Now, can you repeat, it, Jay, you did a great job in a sentence, but can you just repeat it again? Why he's such a good fit? 
The Theta Peak at the frontocentral midline here reflects a change in the brain. That's how it gets there. The change in the brain is that there's, there's a dopamine transport genetics. Not every ADD kid has it, but a large percentage of them do. And essentially, it, it's, a, it's an enzyme, uh, a transferase enzyme, uh, that ends up stripping away dopamine from the basal ganglia, the striatum. Because it's got a dopamine deficit from that leak, if you think of it as a leak. I mean, it's a chemical process to strip it away, but you can think of it as like a leak. And we have a dopamine reuptake inhibitor, which is methylphenidate, Ritalin or Concerta. And it basically plugs the leak. So it provides the dopamine level that you needed to have, but weren't able to hold. And so it, it, it's a perfect match for this pattern. Now, if the theta peak wasn't there, and if the alpha peak was slipping further into the red, it was slower than it should be for age, then an amphetamine uh, to speed up the background alpha would be a perfectly good match. Some kids have alpha up front and they need an antidepressant, not a stimulant. You know, and, and again, there's some kids that have epileptiform discharges and for those kids, they need an anticonvulsant. So if you actually look at the EG, look before you leap, don't dive in before you actually look what's under the surface, you're, you're going to end up seeing what kind of pattern it is and exactly what the match would be. Again, beta spindles, channel blocker, Intune of 10x for kids, uh, clonidine for adults that have the same kind of a pattern. If we can look and have an educated guess that reduces the number of trial and error trials. Oh, try the methylphenidate. Oh, it didn't work. Well, try the amphetamine. Oh, you had a seizure? Ah, well, we should have had you on an anticonvulsant. So, and you would have known the anticonvulsant was the right one first. So they didn't get jacked all over the place with, you know, drugs that didn't do them any good and may have done them some harm. And anyway, I, uh, <laughs> you didn't know that there was a soapbox underneath me here, you know. So, um, yeah, th th this is a TBI case and this is a, a, an ADD case. You, you've got more kids that have the theta pattern. And by the time you're an adult with ADD, and that ADD doesn't necessarily go away maturationally. Uh, so if you're an adult with ADD, actually you're more likely to have the alpha pattern than the theta pattern. Um, but uh, the theta pattern does exist in adults and they need the same uh, medication. If they've got slow alpha, they should need the same medication. If they have beta spindles, same medication. Uh, my grandma was right. Uh, if, if you actually look at what's going on under the surface, uh, you know, we're, uh, we got lots of different kinds of hairdos, some people with not much hair. Um, you know, and uh, you, if you actually look at what's going on under the cranium in the brain, uh, it ends up helping guide you clinically uh, so you don't make as many errors and you don't waste as much time and have potential side effects. You know, some drugs that you take, quick. it takes, it takes a, a bit of time to get off of them. So the trial and error may have a side effect that you don't like. It might take a while to get off that, to get onto another one. You save time and, and uh, expense uh, by targeting the right med the first time. Yeah, I think you're, you're probably aware Daniel Amen is pretty open about discussing how psychiatry is one of the only branches that doesn't really study the organ quotes, right, that they treat, yeah. meaning they don't really look at the brain. They do, you know, lay on the couch. Let's talk about stuff. Not so much these days. Right. But that's more their orientation than, hey, let's get in and look at this. Just I guess I'm, I'm channeling my inner Laura, uh, who's not with us today, but how do you think, or do you have any ideas about how this could become more mainstream or, you know, we could go this far, I think, and say more appropriately utilized? Yeah. One of the difficulties for applying EEG clinically is the extent of training and technology that's needed for it. But that's changing rapidly. 
you know, the, the Koreans right now have a dry sensor helmet, a cap basically that fits on and sizes appropriately to the head, keeping all the electrodes proportionately in the right spot. All sorts of gears and levers inside of this thing keep everything proportionally in the right spot. And they have several silver chloride um, you know, uh, uh, electrode contact, and you can slip this on most people. Uh, I mean, if you've got a big dreadlocks coming out, you can't fit it. That, that makes it difficult. Then the old pasted on has to be done. But for most people, you can end up with a, a good recording uh, very quickly. Uh, they've designed this for the clinician who doesn't know anything about EEG. They can put a helmet on a head. And the helmet uh, goes through a smartphone to a cloud. Uh, the processing is done on an AI server on a cloud, and you get the results back almost immediately. Their first application that they are using it for is to determine dementia versus mild cognitive impairment versus normal aging. You can be normal aging with some depression. It's very difficult to tell that from mild cognitive impairment. And in, in fact, I think I saw a misdiagnosis yesterday. Uh, the, the, the application of that to a kid could end up identifying what pattern matched with which medication really quite readily as well. Sure. It's just what market segment they're going to target. They're going through the Korean FDA. Uh, they're going through the U.S. FDA. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a new medical device. So, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, but uh, the, the future is so bright, I have to cover one eye now, you know? <laughs> so the, the ADD kid uh, isn't the same as the ADD adult. Um, uh, attention deficit is going to uh, stunt your potential, your, your potential within life. And if you have better control of your attention, uh, you're going to uh, 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 thrive better. Uh, so uh, I don't know anybody who's got ADD who wants to keep their ADD. They may like their creativity, but that's not in, that's not ADD, that's creativity. And right. fixing ADD will help with the creativity. <laughs> so uh, expressing the creativity. Anyway, um, th that's uh, the, the first little case. The next one I wanted to show today is actually uh, a person who uh, had a sports injury. Uh, the sports injury uh, was a whack in the head, which tends to happen, you know, football, basketball, soccer, wrestling, you name it, you know, <laughs> screwing around in the hall at school, even, you know, I mean, um, uh, falling down the stairs at home. I mean, somehow people have head injuries and we want to avoid the brain injuries that can happen with a head injury. So we need to be able to identify them. Now, this person saw stars. The important thing is they saw stars up to the left. The, the location you see the stars quite often tells us where the brain got whacked. And if you, if you draw a gigantic pie plate of, of everything you can see and you divide it in the middle, the entire left-hand side of what you see goes to the right side of the back of your head. For them to see stars on the left tells us that the right side at the back of the brain probably got a pretty good whack. This is the EEG because they're everything he saw to the left never really straightened out properly. He was kind of missing what was over there after the head injury. And he thought it was, he had done something with his eye, but literally both eyes, the left-hand edge of everything you see with both eyes. So it's not one eye, it's the left side of everything you see with both eyes. And this is his EEG, eyes closed. Now, eyes closed gives us a well-formed background alpha. The, the alpha was the first rhythm to be discovered in 1928-29, actually published in 28-29, discovered almost a decade before that. Um, he tried to prove it was not real uh, 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 before he published about it, but the, the Berger rhythm, 
the alpha at the back of the head. Uh, the second rhythm to be found was beta. Um, so they, they were using Greek letters, so we're stuck with that, you know. This is the uh, EEG, again, from the front, uh, FP1, the left front, just above the left eye, um, F7 off to the side, uh, T3 above the ear, T5 uh, kind of the back of the uh, temporal area, and O1, O2 way at the back of that occipital area. The electrode uh, designation tells you kind of where the electrode is, and we want to see the alpha normally at the back of the head in the visual area, and it has a spread around there because the visual system has to process that information. So we accept that we expect to see it occipitally and parietally, very prominent way with the eyes closed. Well, you can see O1, left occipital, that's this wave, is pretty good sized. The right side, very small. And if you remember the last case, the little eight-year-old, we said the right side is normally bigger than the left side. So when I see this, I'm a little suspicious right off. This is a reverse symmetry. Um, and uh, this, this isn't right. We, we look through the EEG. There's a little bit of slower content up front, a little bit in the temporal area. And if you look at the right frontal, and right temporal area, you'll notice that slow wave that superimposes on itself. That's the same slow wave. It's in, it's, it's down in the uh, theta frequency or delta frequency range. There's very slow activity coming from the right temporal area. So, you know, and you know, you, you might say, well, uh, you're pointing it out, but I sure as hell don't see it, you know. So uh, it's all wiggly lines to me. It's all Greek to me, you know. Well, uh, alpha, beta, uh, theta, delta, gamma, lambda, it's all Greek. We've got to be able to display the EEG in a way that makes sense to people who can't see the wiggly lines as well. Now, I've been looking at wiggly lines for 50 years, basically. So, and, and I've seen way over 500,000 of these. So it's easy for me to see it, even with the one eye. We, we can't expect everybody to have developed that, that skill suddenly. So what we do, again, this is cleaned up. There's no eye movements in it. Uh, uh, this is sleep. This is 500 seconds in. This is called a vertex sharp wave. Uh, and you can see it right there. Now, you might think, well, uh, Jay has lost it. It's not sharp. It's big and slow. You know, what's Jay saying it's a sharp wave for? Let's mark it. This is the vertex sharp wave. It's at the vertex, CZ. But it looks big and slow, not sharp. A sleep lab, which they declare things a vertex sharp wave in a sleep lab, have a different sweep speed. This is that same moment. See why they call it a sharp wave. It looks quite sharp now. So uh, um, he's fallen asleep. And um, we don't want to analyze sleep necessarily. Um, and the other thing is, when was the last time you couldn't stay awake for 10 minutes with your eyes closed? I mean, when you get whacked in the head, sometimes you have trouble staying awake even. And uh, he's fallen asleep into stage two sleep. I mean, this is a sleep asleep. It's not drowsiness. This is unconscious asleep. So uh, we're going to back this up uh, to the point where we see the alpha. Remember the alpha that we saw at the beginning? You know, as, as we scroll through, the alpha is going to start to sputter and drop out. This is the lightest stage of drowsing. Uh, and and there's just still awake enough. that um, they, they, It was a, a little dip like this, but it wasn't a total unconsciousness. So we're going to grab what we can of the alpha when it's still happening. 
And when we start to see it disappear for longer stretches of time, we're going to have to stop and, and say, well, it's too drowsy. Well, it's hard to see the alpha anymore. So we're going to have to back it up a little bit. Um, uh, we, we can back it up to about the two-minute mark, 120 seconds, 123 or so. I'll mark that as the right-hand side of what we're going to analyze. Mark this as the left-hand side. And we can analyze the selection that we've got. And it's a short piece. Um, uh, I'm going to shorten this up to two seconds to smooth the spectra just a little bit. Uh, when you get a very short piece, the spectra can be a little jittery. And we're going to run the Fourier. So at this point, you can see left occipital. This is like looking down on the top of the head. The nose would be up front. This is the back of the head. Left ears over here, right ears over here. This is the top of the head where that vertex wave happened. Um, but we're looking at the back of the head for the alpha. Well, my goodness, we've got all this alpha over on this side. And we can map that. And you can see alpha on the left side missing on the right. Turn up the sensitivity a little bit. Notice how this comes down very nicely. Over here, we've got this lump. I'm going to map that lump. There's a slow focus over here in the theta band. Remember, we counted some stuff in the five, six Earth range over there. And in addition, look here, then look here. There's a delta peak. Let, let me colorize these, fill by band range. You can see the delta band, and we can map that. So there's a slow focus, which means likely white matter was injured. Uh, there's an absence of alpha, and um, there's a slowness to everything. Uh, so there's a mixture of gray matter and white matter injury in this relatively severe brain injury. When you see a delta focus like this, it means there's white matter involvement. Uh, Bob Thatcher did a very nice study uh, correlating the quantitative EEG and the quantitative MRI. And they showed that gray matter injuries influenced alpha and beta content, the faster frequencies of alpha and beta, and white matter injuries uh, influenced the delta band. So the delta focus we see in the right temporal area is a white matter injury. Uh, the slow content in the back is probably a mixed gray matter, white matter injury. And the absence of the alpha is definitely a gray matter injury. Um, uh, this is a severe injury and it needs to be uh, addressed. Uh, they, they need to look for and make sure that we don't actually have a structural change over here. Now, EEG is function, but it depends on structure. So what can happen when you really bang the head? Not just gray matter and white matter, but blood vessels. You, you can hit the head so hard that you tear a blood vessel. If it happens deep in the brain, um, that, that's very dangerous. It's like a stroke. Um, and if it happens on the surface, if it happens outside the dura, the dura is a lining on top of the brain, like a skin over top of it. If, if it's an epidural, uh, you usually die within hours. If it's a subdural hematoma, uh, then it, it, you can go for weeks to months and some people end up with a chronic subdural that they've had, you know, it doesn't, doesn't go away. It's just there. Um, and, and, but they're space occupying. So they squeeze the brain and they can end up changing function in an area. Let's look at my father's CT scan. This is his first one. For those of you, uh, and I've reversed this. So this is left and this is right. Normally, CT scans and MRIs are reverse, uh, but I wanted to show this to my siblings. And if you see something on the left, you've got to think it's on the left. Um, 
uh, so the MRIs and CT scans are all flipped. Uh, so I flipped the image uh, so that they could see it kind of as you intuitively view it. I'm going to do some very bad art here. Um, the midline of the brain should be at the midline. It's all the way over here. And it should be down the middle. This is about a two centimeter deviation to the right. This kind of half a wing of a butterfly should have another one over here. Uh, so we're missing the ventricles, the fluid filled cavities on the left side, they've been squished. Additionally, on the right side, you can see the gyri, the, the bulges and the sulci, the dips. That's, these are more normal. The, the brain normally has curvature and, and dips in between. On the left side, everything is squished flat by the pressure. The amount of volume that's in this uh, is just about like having a fist size volume stuck inside of your head. You can imagine putting a hand underneath the skull on that side and occupying this much area. So he had fallen about Thanksgiving. You know, I, I grew up in Fargo and it gets a little slippery back there about that time of year, icy, and he got out of the car and whoopsie-doo, kablunk, down onto the ground. And he's in his early 80s. And, you know, he hurt his arm and they went to the hospital. They got a nice hospital system in Fargo and um, they x-rayed his arm because they thought he might hurt that. And, and they stitched up his eyebrow because he had hit his head. But they didn't CT his head, which is actually a mistake. If you're a kid and you have a little nick, big deal generally. But as a senior, your brain has atrophied normally the normal senior brain atrophies some. So it's got a little more room to flop around. And when you fall and stop your skull suddenly, the brain can bounce around in there and tear a vessel. So bleeds in brains on seniors with falls are very common, much more common. So this gigantic pool of blood over on the side here had accumulated over five weeks and during that five-week period, um, you know, he was having some difficulty with speech. But, you know, he's in his 80s, and he, he's uh, like a lot of males. You know, you, you don't want to be the zebra that sticks out in the flock or the, the, they're going to get you. So, he, he, uh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, like he, he, I called him on the phone near Christmas time. And he fell near Thanksgiving. This weeks later. And he couldn't really fully understand me. He could kind of, but not really. And he couldn't speak well. He couldn't find words. And, you know, uh, he, he was very verbally fluent uh, in his days. So it was really striking to me. And at first I thought, oh, he's got a stroke. And then I know it's not behaving like a stroke. And then I thought, oh, my God, he fell in Thanksgiving. This has to be a slow-growing subdural hematoma. And I wrote an email, and I told my dad to put my mom on the phone. I told her to print the email and take him straight to the hospital uh, because um, I thought he had a bleed in his brain. About an hour and a half or so later, I get a phone call from my mom, and she says, this is the phone number. The doctor wants to speak to you. I call him. Um, and they passed me through to his headset. He's in surgery. And uh, in, in the surgery, uh, basically, he's uh, draining out the 160 cc's of blood. That's a lot of volume. Once it was drained out, um, basically, they had to drill two holes, one further forward, one further back. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, shaved half of his head, which was quite a fashion statement for somebody in his 80s, you know, uh, white hair on one side and shaved on the other, you know, uh, uh, Hollywood, you know. Um, but uh, uh, they, uh, the next day they did a CT scan and it was starting to fill back up. He had 60 cc's or so that had filled back in. And uh, so he said, uh, we've got to put in a shunt 
to drain the blood from the head down into the abdomen. Like a VP shunt for the ventricles, only this is a hematoma shunt. It's a big fat tube. So uh, they, they put the shunt in and they wheeled them down. They, they do a CT scan afterwards to show the shunt placement and everything. And at this point, the doctor is getting the CT scans dispatched to his office electronically and has them dispatched to me at the same exact time. So I get this, uh, this CT scan of supposedly the shunt being have, having been placed. I'm scanning up and down and back and forth through the brain, expecting to see either a circle because the slice would go through it or a longer piece because it might go along it. But I don't see the shunt. And there's a, a CT of the entire body, and I see the, the entire shunt is down in his abdomen. The phone rings about the same moment as the neurosurgeon. And, and I said, the shunt's in his belly. And the, the neurosurgeon says, I know, I can't believe it. You know, um, we'll go in tomorrow and we'll put it you know, back in. I don't know how this happened. You know, really sorry. But, uh, and I said, well, you know, Doc, humor me. He's an old man. He doesn't need lots and lots of surgeries in his 80s. And, you know, it's, it was a slow refill. And you had just taken out 160-something cc's, and the brain had to move back into place, and nothing had sealed up, and you got a little bit of blood back. And you drained that out. It might have sealed. We may not have to put the shunt in. He said, well, I suppose we could wait an extra day and see. And sure enough, it wasn't filling. Uh, so he said, well, we can take the shunt out of his belly. And I said, well, leave it in unless it bothers him. So uh, uh, when he died at 90, he still had a shunt in his belly. So, um, but let's, let's look at, look at some of the other images uh, here. This is when the 60 cc's had come in. You could see one of the burr holes. Oh, wow. That, uh, through the skull. Uh, and, and there's, and you can see that the, the cortex is starting to get the gyri and sulci back. And uh, the, the midline is still a little screwy, uh, but uh, it's, it's got a little bit of something off to the side here. The ventricle's uh, back, coming back too. Yeah. A little. Now, I think this, this was written up in, in a journal. There you see half, half a head of hair. <laughs> this is his uh, surgical intervention uh, at those two locations. God damn. And what really upset him most is that it took him away from Sunday football. <laughs> uh, uh, and he, he was reluctant to go to the hospital Saturday night um, uh, be, because, you know, if something was discovered, it would goof up Sunday football. So he still has priorities. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, the, the, the images were uh, professionally published within a journal. Uh, the, the article is called Serendipity and the Subdural Hematoma because we found it by accident, basically. So um, uh, head trauma is uh, very common in sports. It's very common in life. Uh, when you hit your head and you wonder if you hit your brain as well, and it's not just a surface skin thing or a little you know, bruise or something, if you wonder whether the brain was involved, the EEG is a wonderful way to take a look. Uh, if you see significant localized change associated with it, uh, you have to pay attention to that. And it's not always at the spot that you got your whack in the head. You know, you can have a, a big bruise left frontal and the problem might be contra coup on the other side at the back of your head. Uh, and the, the contra coup injury, uh, you can have two injuries, one at the site and the other one at a distance. Now, th there's really two general theories as to how that happens. One is, you know, you have a, a, a skull and you've got a brain inside that goes bang, 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 back and forth and hits both sides. Um, and that can happen. Uh, the, the other is a little bit of a different uh, model. You've got a skull. It's got a curvature to it, kind of like a satellite dish. Uh, 
And a satellite dish focuses energy at a distant location, kind of like the other side of the head. So if you hit this side of the head, it might bump into the brain here and damage it, but it also will focus the energy at a distance and damage an area at a distance. Blast injuries quite commonly uh, create this kind of damage because you don't always move the head dramatically. You don't end up with a bruise on your head, but the, the shock wave has gone through. And when you get with a shock wave, you percuss this um, curved surface and focus the energy. So uh, between the location that gets hit and the other side, you end up tearing up little tiny uh, uh, connections, uh, diffuse axonal injuries, all the little connections in between the location of the trauma and the other side get torn up as well. Uh, blast injuries create diffuse axonal shearing and um, end up with really severe brain uh, uh, injuries. You know, um, when, when you're little, you probably played with tinker toys. Uh, um, and, you know, tinker toys, you can have a hub and you can stick a couple of spokes into it and stick another hub on and stick a, another hub on. And you, you've got all these little hubs and spokes that go up and their connections. Well, you know, some, some connections are like key. There's a lot of things hooked into them. Uh, the, this connection, if, you're, if it's lost, is more important than losing one of these. If you lost this one, things could reroute around. If you lose this one, there's, there's a lot of more difficulty getting around. So when you damage the brain with the diffuse axonal shearing, you're essentially tearing out a spoke or taking out a hub. And if it's a important hub called a rich club hub, it's, you, you lose more function. It's di more difficult for things to reroute. But you can lose a, a, a connection here and a connection there. And you, know, you can generally remain fairly asymptomatic because your brain can reroute. Uh, you're, you have uh, uh, flexibility, um, uh, uh, plasticity. But if you take out an important hub, a rich club hub, it's much more difficult to recover. Jay, those the shearings or injuries to the axons aren't always determined through imaging, right? You can't always see them. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's it, it's, it's more easily identifiable. If you look at connectivity measures, um, the EEG uh, has something called Granger causality uh, that, that can identify how well an area is connected to other areas and using that and, to a certain extent, coherence, although that's, that's kind of a weak measure of this, this phenomenon, uh, you can actually identify the connectivity and where the connectivity has been damaged. Uh, uh, it's a derived measure, but you can usually see some of the, uh, um, uh, some of the uh, impact just looking at the surface EEG as well. Connectivity uh, analysis ends up giving you the detail of uh, the network uh, disconnections that have happened. Which, it, it, I mean, you've explained it pretty clearly, but on the front end is how I think, you know, we, we end up seeing folks that have negative, you know, quote, air quotes, right? Negative CT, negative MRI, but they're in our offices, yep. right? Because stuff ain't yep. working right. Yep. Yeah. The, the CT and MRI will catch major things. If you've had a essentially like a stroke after a head injury. It spots the big bleed. Um, it's, it spots the really severe damage. But, you know, the, the, if you have a concussion and you, you've got a pounding headache after the concussion, you've got an ischemic headache. Like a migraine is a pounding headache. And ischemia is a vascular change. Post-traumatic ischemia is not easily visible on an MRI or a CT scan, but it's a disturbed function in the brain. Post-traumatic ischemia can be repaired with proper function, 
but there's a reason that after a head injury, they tell you to rest um, because uh, bringing an area back online before the vasculature that supplies it has recovered can actually create cell death. Welcome to a little episode of Really Bad Art. You, you've got a, a blood vessel. Now I'm gonna draw a kink in the hose. Uh, the kink in the hose is ischemia. Now, it's, it's not just a kink in the blood vessel, um, but it's a, it's a decreased flow dynamic. So you have a fairly good flow coming, and you've got a smaller flow on the side because a kink in the hose. Again, ischemia. Now, let's say we put a little demand for function here, just a little request for function. The brain regulates its own blood supply. It'll try to open this up. But if you create more demand than this narrowed supply line can supply, if we make a big demand and it can't supply it, what happens? Well, your, your uh, PO2 drops. And when the PO2 drops, the perfusion pressure of oxygen, uh, you have hypoxia. Hypoxia creates edema. Edema is swelling. Swelling creates pressure. It's going to make the post-traumatic ischemia worse. You can actually reach a closure pressure here. Anoxia, not hypoxia. You can have glutamate cascade and cell death. So why do they tell you to rest and not go right back out onto the field? They don't want to kill your brain in an area that's got an impaired flow temporarily because you can recover if you take your time and you have a proper amount of therapy to gently reactivate this area. So again, ischemic change, you've got impaired function if you create a small demand, and you can do that with neurofeedback. Uh, 12 to 15 hertz is a neutral positive perfusion. Let's, let's do a, a little bit of bad art about perfusion. Here's uh, hyperperfusion and hypoperfusion. Lots of oxygen and glucose available, not much. The delta band is actually a positive perfusion. The theta and alpha band up to about 10 or 11 are significant hypoperfusion. At about 11, 12, it goes into a neutral positive. It's not two or three standard deviations increased. It's a neutral positive perfusion. At about 16, it goes up into hyperperfusion. So what we're trying to do is use this positive perfusion, but gentle to train the brain in an area that has the ischemia. And that's going to end up opening up the blood vessel because it's a gentle activation. If you do beta training or gamma training, you'll overdo it and you could create cell death. Not, I mean, it doesn't guarantee that you will, but there's a, there's a good chance you're going to overdo the activation in the area. And, and not let the brain recover the way it could. So the gentle reactivation, again, at about 11 to about 16 cycles a second. This is generally the frequencies that are called the SMR band, sensory motor rhythm, which is a stabilizing rhythm within the brain. Um, and, it, um, and it's also the faster edge of the alpha band. Sensory motor rhythm is in the central strip, fast alpha elsewhere. Uh, but that's the frequency that you train in order to open up the blood vessel. And again, a gentle positive perfusion uh, ends up opening up the blood vessel. And uh, the brain regulates its own blood supply. When a brain area goes active, the blood is shunted to that area to supply the nutrients and, and oxygen that's needed for that function. That's the uh, chat about uh, uh, traumatic brain injuries and uh, a little bit about ADD. Uh, we didn't really look in much depth about the uh, incidence of epilepsy. Um, but uh, again, we've published in that area. And if you see an epileptiform discharge in a non-epileptic, the use of an anticonvulsant as a stabilizing agent has an 85% chance of positive clinical outcome. Jay, I'm going to share this podcast with some high schools because it's, you know, Friday Night Lights, kids are playing football, 
What do you think the future of mental health will look like? Like when a kid twists their ankle, they hobble off on the field, and then the trainer comes over, tapes them up. Or tell me what you envision if somebody gets a good yeah. knock on the head. What should? What do you think will happen? Because right now you get the finger and whatnot. What do you think will happen in the future to make sure that the kid's okay to get back on the field and play? Well, to start with, it's, it's already happening. Uh, there's a, a huge focus on traumatic brain injury in sports. And there are a lot of high schools that are behind the curve, but there's some that are leading the curve as well. Uh, the ones that are leading the curve do some pre-event uh, testing. At the beginning of the season, before you go whacking your head, you can actually get a baseline study. There's CPT tasks, uh, a go-no-go task. You have to respond to by pressing buttons to stimuli. And uh, you have to pay attention. Uh, they'll, they'll measure how many button pushes you missed, your omission errors, your commission errors, your reaction time, variability reaction time. Those little tiny keyboard push button things are screeners. And if they know what your CPT performance is at the beginning of the year and you can't match that, you're not ready to go back on the field. So that's a fairly easy, inexpensive uh, uh, screener. And it, it just takes you know four or five minutes worth of time uh, to get a baseline uh, for each of the, the, the kids on the team. And if something significant happens, you've got a baseline to test against. And you flip through the book and you see what their baseline was. If they can't perform as well as they did, they can't go back on the field yet. There are more advanced ones that are actually doing EEG recordings before the season. And at that point, they have a very sensitive measure of whether the brain is back where it should be or whether there are still problems. Now, that's more appropriate for a higher level team because it's more expensive. You need to record the EEG. You don't have to analyze the EEG right away. If there's a head injury, then you have to analyze the baseline and the, re and the, the more recent one. But you need to get the recordings done at least. Uh, college level, um, especially major colleges um, that, that have a, a, a you know, real program and a major budget and everything, this is a piece of cake. The recording of an EEG is a few hundred bucks. And you know, goodness knows, a few hundred bucks is, isn't even noticed uh, in, in most of those programs. They throw money around in a major way. Um, the, the pros uh, end up being able to afford this very readily and really should be adopting it fully. Not only the CPT task, but the EEG recording uh, they have the ability, if you have a significant whack in the head, to run you in real quick and get an MRI. Or a, 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 you know, it's, it, it's astounding what some of the facilities have now. It, depending upon what level you're at, if it's a high school, the CPT task, um, uh, giving you your omissions, commissions, reaction time, and variability, uh, will be able to identify cognitive uh, deficit after a head injury and catch that as somebody who can't go back on the field yet. And again, it's very inexpensive. It's a quick screener. Uh, the, the more uh, well-endowed programs uh, will end up being able to potentially do EEGs uh, added on top. Do you think the position at the high school, you know, you have the counselors, you have the psychologists to diagnose ADHD, ADD, do you think that could be a position where they could handle both? You know, the, the kids aren't paying attention in class. Do you think the councils would get more involved? What do you, what's your take on the future of that? In fact, the ADD, ADHD identification using CPT tasks is very, very well uh, appropriate. The, you know, you can identify the, the inattentive by their omissions, the hyperactive by their commissions, uh, the space cases by their variability and their reaction time. Uh, and it, it, it's a huge, um, it, it's a huge uh, screener that works very, very well. And it's objective. There, there, there are norms for what age you're at, for how many omissions and commission errors you should be doing. 
And if you're outside normal limits in a significant way, uh, you know, you've got somebody that needs to have some attention. Now, it requires the person to cooperate. I mean, you, you can have some kids that are just oppositional and they're going to mess with your test, um, but you're going to identify them because their, you know, their performance isn't, uh, it, it just isn't there. I think that the EEG ends up being a wonderful reflection of the person and uh, the, the counselors that know their stuff with EEG, QEG in depth will be able to identify things like obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, oppositional defiance. Uh, some kids have rage events and out of control emotion that actually have temporal lobe epilepsy. Um, uh, th those are, and you don't see that based on the behavior. I mean, they look like they're just having a damn snit, um, but their brain has got an electrical storm that makes it out of their control. And quite often they have a, an impaired memory of the event. Sometimes they actually hurt themselves in, you know, while they're just flailing around. Um, those are indications that there's a, a good probability that the brain is out of control, out of their control. Unregulated affect, pseudobulbar affect can also be identified, again, based on the EEG identifying it as, is this person just out of control with their emotion? Or is this actually uh, the, the brain uh, having an electrical storm uh, showing you uncontrolled emotion? Looking at the EEG as these technologies allow easier access without having to know how to measure and paste on all sorts of gooey, messy electrodes. And, you know, if you haven't done a few hundred of them, you're not very quick and you're not very accurate and make a mess out of their hair. And, you know, it's frustrating. But nowadays with the helmets, uh, it, you know, stretch it out, set it on, squeeze it in. They vibrate a little bit to get their little fingers through the hair and, and you're up and running. So, so the, uh, the, the Korean cap, you think that's going to be, you're going to see a lot of uh, schools. They're, they're not the, they're not the only one that's got a dry sensor yeah. technology. There's yeah, there, there's a lot of them coming out. Uh, the technology has improved across time. Dry sensors a decade ago were terrible. Uh, dry sensors now are getting close. Uh, the advantage that Koreans have over others is that the dry sensor uh, electrode issues can be corrected by the ICA uh, that they have built in the independent component analysis that can extract artifacts. So they can clean up the EEG uh, as it's coming in. You know, I, I've known them for an embarrassingly long amount of time, but they, they took my advice um, on what amplifier to use. Uh, they've got norms actually up to 150 hertz. They don't use them above 50. They basically have uh, kept males and females separate. They have uh, gender-specific norms, which, which is a big benefit. Uh, they're the only one to do that. Uh, although I hear that the, uh, the, the Russian-Swiss database may have tried to separate their male and female now as well as they've added to the numbers in their database. The, uh, the, the Koreans followed my advice to do it before there was any direct evidence that it would give you anything. Um, what, but what's the, name of the, what's the name of the company? I sync brain, I, small I, like all the I, this and I, that, you know, like iPhone, small yeah. I, S-Y-N-C-B-R-A-I-N. Uh, and uh, they, they have iSync Wave, um, which, which is, a, I think, this cap uh, helmet thing. Uh, they have a service where you can send EG, QEG data through their server, have it cleaned up by their AI and uh, look at the connectivity and the spectra and the frequency tuning and all of that. So they, they've got quite the uh, corporation now. I mean, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's a big entity, uh, not just a couple of students putting together a, a bunch of studies or something. Uh, again, they've got the ability to differentiate uh, Alzheimer's type dementia from uh, Parkinson's type dementia, from vascular dementia. Uh, with with pretty good accuracy, their helmet differentiating mild cognitive impairment from dementia from normal aging uh, ends up being really quite useful. 
uh, with a 10 minute study, you get your results back within a couple of minutes, you know, that you don't have to wait two weeks to get a result back or something. You, your client's going to be told right then and there, uh, whether they're more likely to be uh, normal aging uh, versus uh, dementia. And having a, an early catch on that is a huge benefit. Uh, if you have dementia uh, and you're degenerating uh, across time, there'll be a time at which they won't let you make your own decisions on your own affairs. And if you're told about it early enough, you, you, you know, you, you can actually still figure out whether you want little Johnny to get the Porsche or not, you know? So uh, anyway, the, uh, uh, you can get your own affairs in order. If you know that uh, you have to do it quick. We thank you for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcasts. Again, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporter, Ars Coso. It's the only 100% natural supplement on the market that provides balanced nutrition, combining pro, pre, post, biotics, and an enzyme which has proven to improve gut health. We love gut health. Supporters, don't forget about our 10% off coupon, NeuroNoodle10. The contact info for everything will be in the podcast notes. If you have an idea for a topic, please email Pete at neuronoodle.com or leave us a voicemail of the link in the podcast notes below. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. This will be a great show to check out the YouTube channel. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. And again, if you really like us, go on Patreon slash Neuronoodle and throw a couple bucks in the tip jar. What do you say? Sandy, we got your letter. We're going to get to you next week. We had a long show. Cue the music. <laughs>